And so the next thing I want to do is just to imagine a scene playing out. And when I imagine this scene, I actually imagine myself in the first person. I imagine this, this is my story, my journey, which is, which is odd. I, don't, I often don't do that. I like to be a, like an observer of the biblical narrative. But this one, I just kind of found myself writing it out as the actual protagonist. And so you can do it either way if you want, but I'm, I'm going to think about it in terms of myself, what I see. And what I see is, as always, as often in the ancient world, this ancient Israelite landscape is just a hot sun. The hot, beating down sun, blue sky, arid, dry dust. And I imagine a road that's just bordering, just on the cusp of the desert. To my right is a huge, arid, dry desert, one of the largest in the world. And on my, on my left is kind of a, you know, rolling hills and scraggly bushes and some greenery. And I can hear sounds, I can hear the sounds of my friends behind me, plodding slowly, their feet kicking up dirt and dust and rocks. But no one's talking. No one's really saying anything to anybody because we've actually been traveling for about six days now by foot. And the mules behind them pulling a cart and then the cart's kind of rocking as the wheels are kind of bumping over the, the stones and, the, and the kind of the crevices in this, in this road. And in the cart that this mule is pulling, I can hear kind of the jingle of metal. But apart from those sounds, it's, it's pretty quiet. There's no breeze. It's just the hot sun, the desert, footsteps, the heat. And in my hand, I'm, I'm holding something. I'm holding a scroll. And it's been kept away for the last few days because I didn't, I didn't want to wreck it. But now I'm holding it in my hand because it has, it has purpose. And in my heart, I'm feeling fire. I'm feeling passion. I'm feeling conviction. I'm feeling authority. For in this scroll that I'm holding is the very decree and the right to do what I'm about to do. And I feel really good about it. Because I'm actually marching towards a destination. And I've been on that road for almost a week. And I have a very specific thing that I'm doing. Something that I actually shouldn't be allowed to do. I've left my home jurisdiction. I've left the boundary of my native land where I, where I have authority. But in this scroll, in this decree, it's given me the authority to go to this place to do this thing that I'm about to do. And this could be the penultimate moment of my life. This could be the defining thing that I do for my cause. And I feel pride. I feel proud of myself that I have led this group to this point. Some may call me and think of me as a hunter, but I don't see it that way. Some may think of me as a terrorist, but I don't see myself that way. Some may call me a zealot, 
an over-impassioned kind of marauder. But I don't, I don't see it that way. I see myself as someone who's fulfilling God's purpose on earth. That I'm actually being the hands and feet of Yahweh himself. That I am the, the marching orders of the fulfillment of the prophets and the law centuries in the making. And not only do I have the divine right to do that, I have the political right to do that, and I have the internal right to do that. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a marauder. I'm not a, I'm not a bandit. I'm not, I'm not a persecutor. I'm a fulfiller of God's will on earth. I feel invigorated by that. And it's fueled me to get to this point, to take these risks. No one else wanted to do this. No one else had the ambition or the thought or the wherewithal. It was me. I initiated this. I see the problem, and I'm going to stop it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm walking, and I'm doing this thing, and I'm feeling good. And then I remember, right, other people have talked about these things for centuries. Other people have warned the day of the Lord for centuries. I have been raised up to believe these things. I know these things off by heart. I know these stories of old. And I'm going to reflect on them. I'm, I'm going to read. I'm going to read from them from my heart because I've actually memorized The prophet Ezekiel spoke about these things so long ago as he was forecasting and foreshadowing the way the day of the Lord would come and how it would come. And in this beautiful, passionate, powerful moment, I get to be one of the instigators of the day of the Lord. And here it is, Ezekiel says, he says, the four creatures look like a blazing fire. Fiery torches, tongues of fire shot back and forth between the creatures. And out of the fire, bolts of lightning. The creatures flashed back and forth like strikes of lightning. And as I watched the four creatures, I saw something that looked like wheels on the ground beside each of the four faced creatures. The wheels were identical, sparkling like diamonds in the sun. It looked like there were wheels within wheels like a gyroscope, and they went in any one way, four directions they faced, but straight, not veering off. The rims were immense, circled with eyes. When the living creatures went, the wheels went. When the living creatures lifted off, the wheels lifted off. Wherever the spirit went, they went, the wheels sticking right with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures went, the wheels went. When the creatures stopped, the wheels stopped. When the creatures lifted off, the wheels lifted off because the spirit of living creatures was in them. And over the heads of the living creatures was something like a dome, shimmering like a sky full of cut glass vaulted over their head. Under the dome on one set of the wheels, wings were extended towards the other with another set of wings covering their bodies. And when I moved, I heard their wings. It was like the roar of a great waterfall like the voice of the strong God, like the noise of a battlefield. When they stopped, they folded their wings. 
And then, as they stood with folded wings, there was a voice from above the dome over their heads. Above the dome was something that looked like a throne, sky blue like sapphire, with a human-like figure towering above the throne. From what I could see, from the waist up, it looked like a burnished bronze, and from the waist down, like a blazing fire, brightness everywhere. The way a rainbow springs out of the sky on a rainy day, that's what it was like. It turned out to be the glory of God. And there I can see, as I'm reflecting on this prophetic image from Ezekiel, from hundreds of years past, a story and a visual that I have been seeped in my whole life that God's glory is coming down from the heavens like a racing chariot, burning through the earth with power and might and brightness and a thundering voice. I can see my destination in sight. I come up over a hill and there it is. Damascus, the city in which I am traveling towards. This is the story of Saul on the way to Damascus. This is his journey, leaving Jerusalem, leaving his, his, his area, his jurisdiction, with the decree from the high priest that he has the right to go out of his region to hunt down people of the way. Not yet called Christians. The people of the way. And really no one really knows what that means. It means the the, the way of salvation or the way to God or the way of living, the way of being. This is how they're known. This is how they identify themselves. And Saul has left Jerusalem with the authority of not only the high priest, but actually authority given by Julius Caesar, like about 100 years before, that, that this faction of religion, the high priest in that area, they had jurisdiction to kind of stomp out radicals that they felt that they, they're, they're deemed to do so. Because outside of Jerusalem, they didn't have the authority to do that. It was special permission And Saul was given special permission and armed with people and friends and chains and wagons and the wherewithal and the administrative ability to go down outside of his area into a foreign city and hunt out people who were confessing to be people of the way. And he comes outside of Damascus, which is like an oasis city. It's one of the most ancient cities in the world to this day. It's a very, very, very old city. And it's an oasis, and it's on the edge of the Arabian Desert and a little bit in from the coast, from the Mediterranean. And there were synagogues there. Jews have been living there for a long time. But now now there's Jews who are professing to be Jesus' followers. And Saul was there stoning Stephen. He knows the threats. He knows the political implications. He thinks this whole movement is a joke. And he hates it. And so Saul says, it's not enough to just stomp out the problem in Jerusalem, I'm going to go wherever there's a problem and I'm going to stomp it out for God. 
And he is prepared, as he's already done, to barge into people's homes and drag out men and women, which is fascinating. Because in the ancient world, women don't matter. But Paul is actually going to go out of his way, not only to take out the male, the, the patriarch, the household name, and he's going to go after the women too. He's going to do whatever he can to stop this spread of this news about Jesus of Nazareth. And N.T. Wright, I love N.T. Wright, and I've shared that with you before. N.T. Wright thinks that, that the, the rabbis like Saul, the Pharisees, the people, the scholarly people would meditate and reflect on the ancient scriptures. And he imagines that Saul is actually reflecting on this prophetic vision of Ezekiel. That the chariot's moving and rolling and racing and it's kind of coming over the horizon. And as it's coming, it's just like this bright, radiant, overpowering vision of God. And Ezekiel's writing, as John will write in Revelation, as Daniel wrote in his, in his prophecy, they're using language to describe what is indescribable. Language is not to be taken literally. It's not to be said, oh, well, there's literally four heads and everything else. No, it's, it's, a, it's a word that I came across that I really like. It's, it's actually a chemistry word. It's called polyvalent. It's meaning with many meanings. It's not literal. It's a, it's a multi-meaning kind of image. To, to invoke the imagination. And so Ezekiel is seeing this vision of, of the presence of God coming down to earth like a thunderstorm, like a battle with these beasts and this movement. And Saul is on his journey and he right imagines this is, this is what he's meditating on. Saul doesn't believe he's a terrorist. He doesn't believe that he's violent. He's not delighting in the suffering of others. He believes he is enacting the will of Yahweh on earth. He is fulfilling, not stomping out. He is bringing about God's kingdom. And then he sees the city of Damascus where he's supposed to go. And it's in eye shot. He could see it glistening off in the distance, meditating on the chariot, on the throne, on the human-like figure who's above the throne, the presence of God. And then all of a sudden, there's a blinding light, dazzling, radiant, blinding. It strikes Saul in the face, and he is overwhelmed, overpowered. And he falls to his face on that dusty road. And the light is so bright, his friends behind him can see it. But they can't make out what it is. And as he's on the ground, probably panting and hyperventilating, he's struck, I don't know, what, I don't know what's going on. He hears his name. Saul. Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Saul recognizes immediately this is not just a person. This is not just a normal happenstance. This is not a bandit on the road or anybody else coming to see him. This is, this is a divine experience. 
he had a category for this. The rabbis and the Jews would have known that this is like the divine voice of God. This is not the first time that God has spoken to people and he thinks, wow, this must be some sort of transcendent spiritual divine experience. And I can imagine Paul's thinking about Moses on Mount Sinai and Elijah on the mountain and even God's spirit speaking over the, the void of creation. And so Saul says, who are you, master? And surprise of his life. Saul, I'm Jesus, the one you're hunting down. Jesus. Somewhere in this, and I can imagine it's got to be only in this moment, Saul lifts up his head just for a, for a moment. And through the radiant light, through this bedazzling light, this overpowering warmth of God, he sees Jesus. Not as ghost, not as imagination, not in his own mind. He sees the risen, resurrected, and full-bodied Jesus. Nail marks, beard, face, smile. Just for a moment. Saul, it's Jesus. The one that you're hunting down. And in what must have been the most, the longest millisecond of his life, Saul's entire world collapsed. And was fulfilled. In the very same moment, everything Saul had ever believed had both been proven wrong and proven right. And he is overwhelmed, struck blind, st struck silent. How could this be true? Everything that he had been fighting, everything that he had heard, all the blasphemous talk about this risen Jesus, the Messiah, how could it possibly be true? And yet, the man is standing right in front of him. The fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy of Daniel's prophecy, everything kind of culminating together in this one millisecond of change. Saul is a very, very, very complicated, interesting person in the scriptures. And it wasn't until I heard this kind of, I, this rendition from N.T. Wright that he started to really make a lot of sense to me. Because in the, in the, in the tradition that I grew up in, I actually hated Paul, Saul, most of my upbringing. Because that's all I ever heard about was Paul, Romans, blah, 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 letters. And I was like, I want to I hear stories of Jesus. So I was actually kind of angry at Paul. 
And then I went to, to my to seminary. I, I heard, well, actually, Paul is a really amazing person. And, I, and my heart softened towards him. And then I heard this, this idea of, from N.T. Wright that I actually, this guy was remarkable. And then it got me thinking, why him? Why not one of the high priests or someone else? Like, why Saul of Tarsus? Why that day? This guy was loud, aggressive, impassioned, ambitious, angry. And I started listing like all these negative traits about Saul. And then realized that, oh, all these terrible things about him are actually the things that made him the most unstoppable force for Jesus in the world. That his passion and his commitment and his creativity and his ingenuity and his intellect and his bombastic bullying tactics are what made him able to withstand how many beatings, how many trials, how many whatever, his intellect, his intelligence, his knowledge of the scriptures. This guy was perfect for his role. And I dare say if he didn't have that experience, none of us would be here today. Meeting the risen Jesus on the road. His whole life changes. With your pink sheet that you have, you can do this now, you can do this later, whatever you've written down at home. I asked three things that were quite simple. Your life's ambition, your core belief, and a personality trait that gets in the way. My, my challenge for you today, or my hope for you today, your prayerful exercise or your, your homework, is if Jesus was to show up to you on your walk today and stop you, stone in your path, what would he say to you about what you wrote down? What would Jesus do with your pink sheet? How would he take your life, your ambitions, your beliefs, even the things that you don't like about yourself or maybe to get you into trouble, how could he kind of flip those things around and place you perfectly in your story to do his work? Because that's the beautiful thing about this story is that for all the flaws that Saul had, Jesus takes his life with love and grace and the Spirit, and he just reforms it into this picture of beauty and this force for good and reconciliation and redemption. And that same process can happen to each and every one of us wherever we are, whatever we're facing. Let's pray.
Jesus, I thank you that um, we can be here this morning. I thank you more, Jesus, that uh, you don't see the flaws in us. You see the potential. I thank you, Jesus, that you actually are, are the only one who can really hold space for our narrative, our story, our past, our trauma, our passions, our history, our deeds, good and bad. And Jesus, you don't hold that against us but actually offer an invitation out of love and grace and mercy to join you in a redemptive purpose. And Jesus, I thank you that uh, you, you can show up to each and every one of us at any point with your radiant light and your warmth and your smile. And you know our names and you know our, you know our place and you can help us write a new story. And you can take all the things about us and make them more us. That we become more ourselves and become more human because of you. So we thank you for your love. and We thank you that you see the real us. And you draw us into something new. So I pray that we'd have a... a a blessed morning, an afternoon, and a time of reflection today. For your name's sake, amen. Thanks for listening to the Blue Mountain Community Church Podcast. May God's word fill you up this week. God bless.